There we go. Boy, the Node Club service would have my head if I didn't turn the mic on. Hi! Okay. Moving on with the Donald Payne. So we just covered the abnormal exam. I think that's, and this uh, lecture really uh, dovetails on that very nicely. Um, we go into some of the differential in a little bit more detail, and we're going to do um, several cases today. So we're going to talk about abdominal pain, common kind of general classification, gen general approach, um, really focus on what are some of the more common causes of acute, acute abdominal pain. So if you kind of know which, which, which diseases you really need to know the, the best, ones you're going to most commonly see. Talk about a little bit about how you approach it, what kind of tests you order, specifically imaging tests. I think that's kind of the big sort of controversy where there's a lot of data, a lot of different things you, your options are, and very specific answers regarding which imaging tests are appropriate um, for abdominal pain. I really want to talk about the use of narcotics in abdominal pain because that's a big medical myth and we need, to, we need to give you some evidence. We need to talk about that at the very end. I am not, not going to cover chronic abdominal pain. It's just too big a topic. There's just too many things involved. It would really take an all-day course and, and it's really not worth covering. You guys need to know about acute abdominal pain. You're going to get most of the patients you're going to see with that. You have plenty of time in the rest of your medical career to learn about chronic abdominal pain. Uh, we won't test on that in this, in this course. So, what are the different types of abdominal pain? When someone says, my belly hurts, you can start to get a clue of what organ's involved or what, you know, where the pain is coming from, from the type of pain that it is. Somatic versus visceral, and then referred related but a little bit different. Somatic. This is when the organ that is actually inflamed or infected or whatever is actually touching the parietal peritoneum, okay? At that point, you're going to get sharp, painful, uh, very well localized, oh yeah, it hurts right here kind of pain. Visceral pain is stretching of a, of a viscous, stretching of a, of a viscous. It's very poorly localized pain. It feels crampy. It feels, well, it hurts kind of along here. It's not one specific spot. It tends to be a band. That band tends to be in the, according to the dermatone where that particular innervation is from. Um, you're going to get activation of the autonomic nervous system, nausea, diaphoresis, sweating, feeling very uncomfortable, feeling dizzy. That's somatic type pain. It gives you a clue on look, where this, the problem is coming from. Referred pain, you may have abdominal pain which gets from an abdominal organ, which gets referred to another part of the body, like the back or the shoulder. Or you may get another organ, especially in the thorax, which presents with pain in the belly. So it can come from the other side. It tends to be ipsilateral, so whatever side you're having that pain on, so if they say you're having the pain in the right shoulder, you probably your organ effect is probably on the right, that kind of thing. So what can cause pain in the abdomen? What I want you to do when you start to, when you approach somebody with abdominal pain, think about it anatomically. So, what are the different organs involved? What's in there? Or what can possibly be painful? A lot of different things are in there. Obviously, the majority of the gut is filled with the gut. Stomach, small intestine, large intestine. Makes a big chunk of it. Stomach, could be ulcers, could be gastritis. Duodenum, could be ulcers. Ilium, um, small intestine could be uh, small bowel obstruction. Large intestine could be colitis, could be diverticulitis, could be appendicitis. 
Okay, so think about the down track, work your way through the system in your head. Um, think about innervation, think about the vascular supply. Hepatobiliary, big source of abdominal pain. Liver, liver can hurt. We talked about cirrhosis in the last section. Uh, could have hepatitis, um, cholecystitis, inflammation of the gallbladder, cholangitis, inflammation of the gallbladder tract, or pancreatitis, very important cause of abdominal pain, very common, very common cause of abdominal pain. Genital urinary, kidneys tend to be in the back, ureters, they refer down, they, they refer their pain to the leg or the groin, they move down toward the groin, and the bladder, the bladder can be painful itself. Gynecologic, uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, major, major contributor to abdominal pain. Vascular is a really important cause because it's really, uh, can be a potentially lethal cause of abdominal pain. The aortic uh, vessels, the split into iliac vessels, the blood supply to the mesenterics, and the veins involved as well. And finally, of course, referred pain. So it may not be the, may not be the abdomen at all, maybe, maybe the lung, maybe the heart. So this is an example of referred pain. A perforated abdominal ulcer may cause irritation of the diaphragm, may cause shoulder pain. Biliary colic um, or acute pancreatitis often refers to the back. They feel the pain in their back. Um, you rectal pain as well. Um, myocardial infarction, heart attack, ca can cause abdominal pain, especially in inferior MI, and MI in the, in the lower part of the heart, can cause upper abdominal pain, epigastric pain. So, of the thousands, I don't know how many, of the hundreds of causes of abdominal pain, what are the ones you really need to know? I think this is a pretty good list, and this just basically takes, of all comers to, um, to primary care clinic, acute care clinic, and ER, um, these are the most common final diagnoses, when there is a diagnosis to be made, of people who have acute abdominal pain. Of patients that are older, older than 50 years, number one by far is biliary, also appendicitis, bowel obstruction is very common, pancreatitis, diverticulitis, cancer of various causes, hernia, and vascular. And vascular is an important one, fortunately less common. For younger patients, number one by far is appendicitis, but also biliary colic is right there too. So biliary system, very common, gynecologic, bowel obstruction, and pancreatitis. And what you want to note about this list is appendicitis shows up pretty high on both lists. So if you, that's clearly a diagnosis we need to know and need to know well. What can kill you? I'm an emergency physician, so when I think of diagnoses, when I think of differentialists, my first thought is, what are the diagnoses I need to know or this patient is going to die? These are the things I need to make sure this person does not have. Big one, right at the top, is AAA. Abdominal aortic aneurysm. AAA, that's what we call it. Um, gets big, starts to leak, things go badly. You can live with the AAA for a long period of time, but as soon as it starts to leak, you're going to die very quickly. Ischemic bowel. You get a blood clot in your uh, vascular supply to your bowel. You get necrosis of the bowel. That causes an infection um, that can uh, lead to death within 24 to 48 hours from sepsis. Myocardial infarction, obviously a very important cause. Again, not a cause, not an abdominal organ, but it often presents with abdominal pain, especially epigastric pain. A type of pregnancy, it's not recognized. 
uh, can cause a perforation and, and kill. Cholangitis. Cholangitis is infection of the biliary tree. So you get a, a, a stone, like a, like a gallstone, that goes into the common bile duct, common bile duct, causes obstruction, and you get infection in that, in that common duct. That causes sepsis very quickly and can cause patient to deteriorate within 24 to 48 hours. And bowel perforation. So whatever causes a perforation of a viscous can lead to sepsis, um, can lead to an acute abdomen sepsis within a short period of time. And the big causes are appendicitis. Okay, perforated appendicitis is a bad thing to have. Um, obstruction. Okay, so if you leave bowel obstruction for too long without relieving it, they can, the bowel can perforate. Ulcers may perforate, or diverticuli <coughs> may perforate. Diverticuli outpouching on, on the colon. What you notice about this list is the, number, is the top three causes of lethal abdominal pain are all related to vascular causes. So if you have a vascular cause for abdominal pain, you're in big trouble. So how do you, how do you diagnose somebody with abdominal pain? How do you, what do you approach for history and physical? Some of the things to know about, you certainly want to ask about the timing. You want to try to figure out if it's acute or chronic. Just roughly by, really by convention, we say two weeks. So if you have the pain for more than two weeks, we tend to call it chronic. Less than two weeks, we tend to call it acute. That's really by convention. There's no really magic to that. Um, so that's kind of, when I, when I say acute versus chronic, that's, that's the time frame they're referring to. What is the character of pain? So we mentioned somatic versus visceral. Getting an idea that sense of that character being crampy, that tends to be visceral, okay, but um, really sharp, it tends to be somatic. That can help you localize this, where, where it is. And that gets back to, to, to lo location, okay? So think about location-wise, anatomically, where in the belly it is, where it's the right lower quadrant, left lower quadrant, or epigastric. Also, it's dermatone level. If it's more visceral pain, what dermatome does it correspond to? Does it correspond to innervation for the abdominal organs or for the thoracic organs? Um, really important when you get into chronic abdominal pain is palliative and provocative features. So how does food affect your abdominal pain? What happens with diarrhea with, with your abdominal pain? What happens with voiding with your abdominal pain? That can help um, differentiate um, different organs involved, different causes for chronic abdominal pain. A lot of things you can ask about in past medical history, past surgical history, that is very relevant. Obviously, NSAID use, aspirin, uh, ibuprofen, nuprin, all these can contribute to ulcers and gastritis. Um, if somebody has risk factors for coronary artery disease, they're more likely to have vascular problems, such as AAAs. Hypertension is a big one. Any previous surgeries? Always got to ask about previous surgeries. Their anatomy may be different now. They may not have a colon. They may have a colon. They may not have a gallbladder. They may not have an, have an appendix. They may not have a uterus. All these things are important to helping your differential figure out what's going on. Also, if you have any surgeries at all, you're more likely to have adhesions and therefore an obstruction. Alcohol can contribute to a number of abdominal conditions, including pancreatitis and liver disease. Um, if, you have, if you're dealing with a woman of childbearing age, the gynecologic history, your last normal menstrual period is really important for uh, developing a differential. And of course, travel or any unusual exposures um, may, may, may prompt you to think about certain infections or parasites. I think 
Carl covered the physical exam in good detail, so I'm not really going to discuss this other than to remind you that the genital exam for both men and women, examining the back, especially the costophrenic angles, and listening to the heart and lungs are all part of the abdominal exam. These are all systems that uh, you need to examine to help uh, figure out what's going on. So with that background, I want to go through a, a number of cases of some of the more common causes of abdominal pain, kind of give you an idea of what these typical cases would look like. And as I mentioned to Carl at the end of his talk, this is first off the list, 24-year-old male presents with right lower quadrant pain. It was crampy and squeezing near his umbilicus when it started. Okay? Cramping and squeezing. What does that sound like? Say visceral. This, that's right! Wow! Okay, you're learning. Okay. That's visceral pain. Okay, so, oh, yeah, it's kind of visceral pain. Okay, so that, that sounds like a stretch, like a stretch of an organ. So it sounds like something is, is stretching and, and pressing on it. Probably having some autonomic symptoms, but he does. He has some nausea along with that. But it changed. The character of the pain changed. It's not like that anymore. Now it's sharp. And it moved. It wasn't the umbilicus. It was a band-like thing around the umbilicus. Somatic pain. But now it's the right lower quadrant, and it's sharp. Visceral pain. Okay. Um, the ride to the hospital is very uncomfortable. Why is that important? Who cares? Get better shocks for your car. What the hell? What are you talking to me about for? It's a sign of... Right, it's a sign of paradise. It's a sign of visceral pain. Every little bump that the patient feels, they say, oh, that hurts. Okay? They, they, they know how many railroad tracks they went over. You, I don't know how many railroad tracks go over every day, but boy, I tell you, somebody, you see somebody with this kind of peritonitis, they'll tell you right away exactly how many times because that really is noticeable. Ask about that. You'll, you'll find it, it's a helpful, helpful sign. The patient attributes it to that bad talk he, the person had. So what kind of things are we thinking about here? So this is pretty classic history for appendicitis, especially that migration um, that you develop. Um, so you examine the belly, and everything seems to be pretty much okay. Okay, you do your inspection, you do your listening, then you do your palpation, and as you're feeling along, they don't seem to be tender. Again, that's pretty typical for appendicitis until you get to a certain location. Now, by the way, this is not the exact answer to Carl's trivia question, by the way. This is what, the, what we interpret the McBurney's point to be. But uh, he's actually asking about the original description, which is a little bit different. Um, patient jumps to grab your hand when you push two-thirds along the line between the um, umbilicus and anterior, spinal, um, anterior superior iliac spine. So basically right there. That's McBurney's point. Also, they hurt when you do the obturator sign. Lift the leg to internally. What's that doing is that's contracting the obturator muscle, which is in the back of the abdomen, retroperineal, it rubs right along that inflamed appendix that causes pain. Also, there's something called roasting sign. And Carl mentioned it briefly. Roasting sign is percussion in the left lower quadrant. So you tap on the left lower side, and you say, and they jump and they say it hurts in the right lower side. So you're tapping on the left, yet it hurts in the right. Why is that happening? You're bouncing organs around. You're brushing that appendix up, that inflamed, very tender appendix, up against the, vis the, the, the parietal perineum, and you're getting, you're simulating that kind of pain. Um, and that's called a roasting sign. 
So this whole progression is that you're, you're seeing the development of the inflammation itself. So you think about what the pathophysiology of appendicitis. You get an obstruction in the appendix. You get an infection in the appendix. The appendix starts to swell. It gets larger. So you get distension of a hollow viscous. Hence, you get... Thank you. Come on, guys. Let's go. Let's go. Visceral pain. Not that hard. Only two words. Visceral traumatic. Visceral pain. Okay. As it gets big enough, and you're getting like actually, it's actually getting longer and fatter. At some point, it's going to be able to touch the wall of the abdomen, touch the wall of the uh, of the peritoneum, uh, where you have that somatic innervation, and then your pain changes somatic, and you get that migration down the right lower quadrant. So you're seeing the progression of the disease. Now. You want to get to this before it bursts, <laughs> obviously, because that's bad. Um, and you know, and uh, because when you burst, then then you're gonna then you're gonna get a re relief actually of that somatic pain temporarily before you develop peritonitis and sepsis, and then you die, and then you know you get sued, and then you feel really bad, and you gotta go tell the family they died, and that's not good. So don't do that. Okay, so. Laboratory-wise, what labs do you need for appendicitis? This is a little bit of a controversial area. According to textbooks, the C, uh, uh, appendicitis is a clinical diagnosis. So the diagnosis of appendicitis is a clinical diagnosis. Based on history and based on physical, you can diagnose appendicitis. That's technically still true. However, in practice, really it's gone to... Um, a radiologic diagnosis, CT scan. CT scans are really, really good at picking up appendicitis. In fact, with contrast, they may be as, as approaching 100% sensitivity, um, depending on which study you believe. Um, so you probably want to go ahead and do a CT scan because you don't want to have to you don't have to go in and do a surgery that you don't really need to do. There's a downside to that. Um, you're going to do a lot of unnecessary t CT scans, and that involves radiation and time and contrast and, 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 uh, and cost. So you don't want to do that. So you need to balance it. You can do an ultrasound. You can do an ultrasound for diagnosing appendicitis. And if you see it, if you see the abnormal appendix on the ultrasound, that counts. That's good. You're good. That's definitely in. That's definitely diagnosis. You've got a very good specificity. However, you may not actually see that abnormal appendix even in somebody who actually has appendicitis. So the sensitivity is low. So it can rule in the disease. It doesn't rule it out. So what does this all mean we're dealing with patients? Well, bottom line is, if you've got a guy, there's not many, many things other than the appendix down the right lower quadrant if you're a guy. You've got your ureter and you've got your appendix and that's about it. Okay? Sorry, guys. Um, if, you, if you've got a typical history, typical exam on a guy, you're probably going to go ahead and just take that patient to the operating room. You're probably not going to do imaging. And that tends to be our practice here. If you're not sure, it's not really clear, could be appendicitis, could be other things. It wasn't really that tender on exam. Not sure about the history. Maybe it's going on a little bit too long that I'm going to expect. You may want to do a CT scan on that guy. In women, however, there's a lot of things that can be because of the ovaries, because of the floating tubes in the right front, because of pelvic organs causing a similar type of pain, there's a lot of different conditions it can be. We tend to do CT scans on women. 
they tend to have a higher negative laparotomy rate, meaning a negative operation rate. Okay. Finally, if the child, if the, per, if, the per, if the patient is pregnant or a child, they're very sensitive to radiation. We really want to be careful about the amount of radiation we give. You're absolutely always going to do an ultrasound first. If you suspect appendicitis and the patient is pregnant, the patient is a child, you do an ultrasound because it involves no radiation. There's no risk to the patient. And if you, if you diagnose it, if you see the, the appendix, you're done. You can skip the CT scans. Everything's great. Okay? But you may have to go to CT scan later because the ultrasound is not always sensitive enough. Does that make sense? Get a little tricky. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about, about white blood cell count, but you'll commonly see that. Um, or with, with CT scan, I think it's with, 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 in patients with appendicitis, you expect to have an elevated white, white blood cell count. However, it's not 100%. 70 to 90 will be elevated, meaning 10 to 30, up to a third of patients with appendicitis will have a normal white blood cell count. So you can't count on the white blood cell count to help you. It's, a, it's an imaging diagnosis or a clinical diagnosis. The, the white blood cell count is just one more element in sort of your decision-making process. Okay. Second case. Young female presents with right lower quadrant pain. Looks like the same kind of thing as an epi. It was crampy, it was squeezing, it was visceral, it was in the middle, uh, middle of her belly, and then it moved. Now it's in the right lower quadrant. Sounds like an epi. The right of the hospital is uncomfortable. Again, signs of peritonitis. She's got nausea. She's got pain in the right shoulder. Right shoulder. Okay, there's that referred pain we were talking about. So something's irritating her perineum on the right. You ask about her menstrual period, she's having it now. She's on her period right now. But she missed her last one. So her last normal menstrual period was eight weeks ago. You walk in the room, she looks terrible. She looks very pale. She's very tender in the right lower quadrant. She moans, you examine her anywhere, okay? But she's particularly tender in the right lower quadrant. Not the same thing as we saw with appendicitis. It's not appendicitis. The exam was fairly okay until we touched that McMurray's point. This patient looks bad all over. So you want to do a pelvic exam because that's part of the abdominal exam. And you find this patient that she has cervical motion tenderness. Cervical motion tenderness means you move the cervix, it hurts a lot. Okay, it's not comfortable to move the cervix. I, I know that. But it just hurts more than usual when moving the cervix. And she's got right nexal tenderness. And there's blood there kinds of things that you think about here. What's that? Very good. So you do the labs, you find that she has BHEG, pregnancy test is positive. And she's, 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 she's been bleeding, her hemoglobin's low. So you do an ultrasound. You can't find the appendix. Well, that's too bad. But you also find that you don't see any embryo in the uterus. So you're looking at the uterus, there's no intrauterine pregnancy despite having a positive pregnancy test. And that's a sign of a topic pregnancy. Okay? So that's, that's what this case is. Okay. Another type of baby. The pulsating baby. Ooh. Older guy. 80-year-old. Pain for a week. It's been hurting. It started like a pressure or tightness in the low back. But now it became suddenly really sharp and all over. It was like, yeah, it was kind of dull, it was kind of bad, it's going on for a while, my, my lower back, but now, all of a sudden, for the last hour, it's really bad. Long history of, of hypertension and coronary disease. This, you thought the last patient looked bad, this guy looks even worse. 
Also, he looks awfully pregnant, which is a little unusual for an 80-year-old male. <laughs> Look it up. It hasn't happened very often. This patient's baby is pulsating. Funny? It's matching his heart rate, too. That's not good. What's this? This is a triple A. Okay, so, what is it? So, so you wouldn't always actually see a swollen belly, but you can certainly feel it. You can feel your own aortic pulsation. When you do an exam on a partner, especially on a thin patient, you can feel aortic pulsation. That's normal. You can estimate the size of the aortic pulsation on exam, um, again, in a thin patient, usually. Um, and you can get a sense of like what's a normal degree of aortic pulsation. You touch a patient like this, and just laying your hands on them, you can feel the pulsation. So for diagnosis of this, the best, if you have the time to do it, if the, if the patient's stable enough, you want to do a CT scan. A CT scan with contrast. That way, you can identify the anatomy, you can figure out where the aneurysm is in terms of what level and the length of it it is in the belly. Also, it gives you an idea of how much time you have. This is a CT scan. This is an abdomen. Okay? Here's the spine. Here's a kidney. Here's the tip of the other kidney. And right in the middle, and you know it's the aorta because it's filling with contrast. You've injected dye into the, into the vascular system. The arteries are filling with contrast. They light up the white, and you get this really stark white thing. Okay, I know you guys have seen some CT scans, and you'll see a lot more as you go along. This is really big, really big. It's supposed to be lying right along the spine, and it's supposed to be like a couple centimeters. This is like six centimeters. And what makes it worse is you've got all this kind of, mm, I don't know, um, mushy, goopy, kind of, I don't know, red, gross stuff that's kind of all over, okay? And this is a sign of a leaking abdominal aneurysm, okay? So not only do you have a huge aneurysm in the anterior part of the belly, um, which is pushing forward and really big, but you've got a lot of, sh and this is a technical term, schmutz, schmutz, all over, and that's the blood that's coming out of that, um, and the clots that's coming out of the, uh, of the aneurysm. And this is just another example of the same thing. We've got this huge aneurysm. Yeah. Why doesn't it light up? Yes. And actually, it does. Um, and if you see different windows of, say, the same, the same thing, you may see um, bits of contrast on there. But once it gets out of the high flow volume, high flow um, container that is the aorta, it clots. So it has laminar flow, well, in this case, turbulent flow, when it's going through the aorta. And so the activation system, the blood's doing what you're supposed to do, it doesn't clot automatically. Once it gets into the abdomen, it starts to clot. But yes, and, you, and, and different CT scans, you may actually see contrast leaking out into the belly as well. I never had a Schmitz question before. That's good. All right, cool. Okay, <laughs> another case. Have you heard this term, uh, 40 female fertile fat? Okay, yeah, all right. Um, flatulence, see the part of it. 40-year-old uh, female presents with right upper quadrant pain. For She's had it on and off for a couple of weeks, kind of been there, kind of hasn't tends to be tied with eating, okay? And then, tonight, it's just a lot worse. I mean, she's had this before, but it's never been this bad. 
and um, it, it was crampy. It came in waves. Okay, that's very, that's very visceral. Um, but now it hurts a lot more and goes right through to her back. So it's referring to a specific area. Associated with nausea, she's having normal stools. Uh, she is fertile. She is a little bit overweight. Um, and you go to an exam, and she is tender in the right upper quadrant. You examine her back, and she's really not tender in her back. Even though she's complaining of a lot of pain back there, she's not that tender in her back. Okay, it does hurt, because if you certainly pound on your chest, you're going to move the organs in her belly, too. If you pound on her back, you're going to move the organs in her belly, too. But she doesn't hurt that much. So that gives you a clue that that's referred pain. Referred pain. When you push in her belly, and you have her breathe in, Take a deep breath in. She gasps and stops, stops her respiration when, she meets, when her diaphragm meets her hand. What's that called? Murphy's sign. That's one on, the, on that list of uh, a thing on, on Carl's slide. Um, again, we're not going to ask you like, what's Murphy's sign, but you're going to hear that term a lot. So you, may, you just may as well learn it. Okay. So you do a... Um, a CBC, you find out she's got a white blood cell count of 16,000. Okay, she's got an elevated white blood cell count. So signs of inflammation, signs of infection. Her AST and ALT are mildly elevated. AST and ALT, what are those for? What do those mean? Alanine transaminase and aspirine transaminase. They're signs of liver inflammation. They're signs of liver inflammation. So elevation of AST and ALT are signs of liver inflammation or liver cell turnover. Her total bilirubin is totally normal. Okay, she's not jaundiced. Remember, her stools were normal color. Okay, and lipase and amylase is normal. The reason I'm mentioning these is I just want you to remind you of the biliary anatomy, the anatomy of the biliary tree. You've got your liver. Okay, you've got the hepatic duct, hepatic duct, the duct that goes from the liver to the common duct. You've got your gallbladder, which sits underneath the liver, and you've got your cystic duct connects the gallbladder to the common duct and then you've got your common duct. Okay. If you have blockage in the gallbladder, if you, nothing's coming out of the gallbladder, the biliary tree is still working. You're still getting drainage of biliary products coming from the liver that goes into the intestines. Okay. This stuff all still works. So you wouldn't expect it someone with cholecystitis Information in the gallbladder to necessarily have jaundice. Okay, so the bilirubin that's that, that's consistent. Now, if this patient had jaundice, it was bright yellow, had a lot of had had a lot of high, elevated white blood cell count, had a lot of pain in the right quadrant. Maybe she had a fever, so fever, right quadrant pain, jaundice. Let me know the name of that triad. That's a sign of cholangitis. Cholangitis. So if the infection is in the common duct here, that's cholangitis. That's really bad. But if, you, if the inflammation is here in the gallbladder, that's cholecystitis. That's uncomfortable. It is bad. It needs to be treated, but not nearly as bad. And it can be treated by removing the gallbladder. You can't, however, remove the common duct. You need the common duct. You need bile going to your intestines. You don't need your gallbladder. Take it out. You're done. Diagnosis for this is by ultrasound. It's important to remember, ultrasound is better at identifying the biliary tree 
than the CT scan. I'll say that one more time. Ultrasound is better identifying the biliary tree and the biliary anatomy, measuring the gallbladder size, diagnosing conditions of this area than a CT scan. So you suspect biliary problems. Getting a CT scan is not the correct answer. Getting an ultrasound is the correct answer. This is different than, than, than previous diagnoses we talked about. CT scan in general is better for the abdomen for most conditions. This is the major exception. Ultrasound for biliary diagnosis. I've emphasized a couple of times, it's now fair game. Thank you, move on. Okay, um, this is what it would look like. This is uh, your gallbladder. This is a, a particularly distended one, so it's kind of big. And right in the neck, in the opening of the gallbladder, you've got this big solid thing, and that'd be a stone. And when that gets lodged in the neck, and you get inflammation around it, and you get gallbladder wall thickening, gallbladder wall thickening, that's signs of cholecystitis. So you might have fluid around the, around the gallbladder, gallbladder wall thickening, a stone in the neck. Those are all signs of cholecystitis. Okay. Next case. Here we have an older, older male who is having progressively increasing abdominal pain. It's tight, it's squeezing, very, you know, somatic. And uh, hasn't had a BM for days. Three days. Not even passing any gas either. That's, that sucks. I mean, it's great to fart. Come on. It's great to fart, right? This guy can't even fart, okay? It's building up. All that gas is building up. All that stool is building up. That's got to be really uncomfortable. You talk about a distended viscous. This is distended viscous big time. He was nausea. He was vomiting up. He vomited up his stomach content, vomited his food. Now he's vomiting up this foul, dark stuff. What's that? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Say it. Yeah. He's puking shit. <laughs> so you think about the anatomy involved. You get an obstruction down the line, and it can't go out the bottom. It's got to find some way to go out, so it'll go out the top. It's bad when it gets to that point. You want to get to it before then. Um, this person has all sorts of surgeries. He had his appy out, he had his gallbladder out, he's had hernia, then he had another hernia, then he had the hernia revised, and to make it worse, he even had colon cancer and they took out, took out his tongue, chunk of his colon. You go, to, you go up to his belly, you go, go to examine him, it's obvious from the beginning, as soon as you even do the inspection part of the exam, that something's very abnormal. This guy looks huge. Not pregnant, because it's distended everywhere. Like the whole thing's distended. Um, and you, it doesn't matter where you examine him. Uh, wherever you examine him, he's really painful. Now, he is not, he does not have pain out of proportion to the exam. He has, um, when you examine his belly, he has the same degree of pain that he's sort of demonstrating um, just from his description. Now, the reason I point that out is because if you were to have bowel ischemia, which is purely a somatic uh, component. You basically have necrosis and death of the bowel itself. The visceral peritoneum, the paratoperitoneum, is not necessarily involved. So when you push in the belly, it's, it's a, you wouldn't necessarily get, touch that necrotic dead bowel stuff. Okay? But here, when you've got a obstruction, we've got distension of the, of the bowel everywhere, it doesn't matter where you touch. You're going to push the, 
the, that parietal perineum onto that distended, tender, painful intestine. So that's a big difference in the diagnosis. When you have someone who's incredible, who's in incredible pain, he just he's older, he's in plenty of pain. He's, he's just you cannot make him comfortable. What you do, no matter how many narcotics you give him, they're just miserable. They look terrible. They're sweating. They've got all those um, somatic signs. And you uh, and you do your exam, and they're just not that tender. Like he looks terrible. Was he faking it? No. Um, that's pain out of proportion to exam. Now. You want to see a surgeon freak out? This is great. So, you want to get, next year when you're third year and stuff, and you want to like get, you know you want to get your resident like actually like motivated and actually like get off his ass and like do something. Say, oh yeah, I just saw this 80 year old guy. He's got pain out of portion of the exam. Just you just see him like face laugh like oh my god. Because that when you say those when you say that phrase, when you say that term, you means you think they have ischemic bowel, and ischemic bowel kills. It kills within a day. So you need to operate on the patient right away. Okay? So that's an important difference when you're examining this patient. Finally, you listen to the bowel sounds, they're just not there. Now, in obstruction, and I should point this out because Carl just did a great job describing bowel sounds. In obstruction, you can have different types of bowel sounds. In obstruction, your bowel sounds could be increased because your bowel's trying to push through that obstruction, okay? or maybe decreased because you have ileus, the general shutdown of your gut. Okay, it's depending on the cause. So it can be up or down, but it's not normal. So this is, this is where plain films are useful. Sure, a CT scan is going to tell you exactly what's going on. It'll really well define the obstruction. It can tell you, tell you where in the belly the obstruction is. But this is one of the few indications for plain x-rays, plain films of the abdomen. Plain films of the abdomen are useful for obstruction, and they're useful for free air. So if you have to see a perforation, then it's going to pick up something. But most other indications, um, the other imaging studies are just better. Like looking for like stones, kidney stones. You can see kidney stones on, on plain films, maybe. But you may as well get a CT scan because you know you're going to be able to pick it up. Um, they're really not that sensitive. You're generally just going to get this kind of non-specific pattern. You're not going to see much on there. But for bowel obstruction or, looking, or looking for free air, plain films are very useful. This is an example of bowel obstruction. You've got dilated loops of small bowel and you've got air fluid levels. I do have to show you this, this case. This is a patient I saw a couple years ago and he came in and he said he has not passed a bowel movement in six months. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, right, sure, whatever. And I examined him and he was really tender and he had this thing, this like mass, this like baby-shaped mass, um, over in his left lower quadrant. And we do the x-ray, and this entire thing, this entire half of his belly is his colon, and it's full of poop. He had to go to the operating room to get this removed. He had to go to the OR for constipation. That's the first time that's happened to me. So... Um, <laughs> Any idea what he had? This apparently happens to him off and on because he doesn't fall with his care. Why would that happen to somebody? Why would they not be able to push out? He has something called Hirschsprung's disease. Hirschsprung's disease. Oh, see, I see nodding heads going, oh, yeah, yeah. So he's lacking the stretch receptors um, of, the, of the colon. 
to be able to to be able to push out, to be able to sense that distension, and be able to push with the small the small uh, the smooth, smooth muscles. So he's lacking of pushing the smooth muscles of his large intestine, and this is the result when he doesn't follow up with his care, which is keep up with his with his care, which is includes enemas, and he just let it build up and let it build up and let it build up and sure enough he had six months worth of poop in his belly. That's bad. Don't don't do that. With that cheery thought, moving on. Fifty six year old man, um, he comes off a bender. I mean he this guy was at the Iowa Iowa State game, had a great time with tailgate before, tailgate after, tailgate the next day, tailgate the next five days, because, you know, he just he doesn't care. He's no one else tailgating, but he is. Um, <laughs> Finally, he gets this really, really bad abdominal pain. And uh, he just vomiting repeatedly. He can't keep anything down. No matter what he does, he keeps, he keeps vomiting stuff up. And his, his belly is just burning. He's already had his, his uh, gallbladder out, so it's not that. He just looks awful. I and mean, he looks really in a lot of pain. But he does not have, does not have pain out of portion of the exam. You touch his belly, he jumps off the table. You touch his epigastrum specifically, he really jumps off the table. And yes, his pain goes to the back. Okay, um, he doesn't really have an, uh, a, a Murphy sign. His right requirement was a little tender, but not bad. But it was really mostly epigastric, and he's not bleeding, which is good. That's fortunate for him. Any ideas what this would be? So this is pancreatitis, and one thing you think about with pancreatitis is um, uh, the way to diagnose is to get a lipase level. And if your lipase level is really, really high, that's a, that's a pretty specific and sensitive sign for pancreatitis. And it could be some other things. Now, one thing you'll, think, you hear, or you'll read about associated with pancreatitis is the Ranson's criteria. Ranson's criteria. It's a set of, of labs that you can get, uh, that you get at mission and 48 hours after mission to sort of gauge the um, prognosis of someone's pancreatitis. And the more... Ranson's criteria you have, the worse, the, the worse prognosis you have. Now, I don't want to emphasize this too much because really, um, it doesn't really change your management that much. You're still going to be worried about a patient. You're still going to take care of a patient. You'll need to hear about it because you definitely will be quizzed on it next year. It'll come up on medicine. Um, it may come up on surgery as well. Um, these are the li lists. But think, I, think about the admission labs. So you have someone who comes in and they're older. They've got a lot of inflammation, so white, white count greater than 16,000. Because of disruption uh, to your um, to your hemostatic system, to, to your gluconeogenesis system, you've got an elevated glucose. So your count looks like you've got diabetes, even though you don't. So glucose over 200. LDH is a, is a measure of inflammation, is a measure of cell turnover. That's really high, 350. And AST, where well, I mentioned AST was a sign of liver inflammation, that's really high. So you can imagine if you've got, if you're an older patient, you've got more severe disease, you're going to have more of these positive findings. So that's a way to think about pancreatitis. Okay, last case. Uh, 46-year-old male presents with left lower quadrant pain. Um, it was, pain was crampy and all over, just like before. We talked about the same thing. And it migrated, this one too. Now it's very tender in left lower quadrant. He goes, yeah, this is just like my appendicitis. But my appendicitis was on the other side. You examine him, and he's perfectly fine, except you touch his left lower quadrant, and he's really tender down there. And yeah, sure enough, he's had an app yet. Well, what could be on the left side that would be causing pain like this? 
So this is a pretty classic for diverticulitis. And what you may uh, find, whoops, you'll find is that the uh, white blood cell count will be elevated. The CT scan is a very sensitive and specific way of diagnosing the severity of diverticulitis. We do send patients with diverticulitis home um, from the ER <coughs> on oral antibiotics if they have a very mild case. But if we're suspicious of more severe cases, if they have a lot of comorbidities, we may uh, do a CT scan, evaluate how severe it is, and admit them to the hospital, um, get some, start on IV antibiotics. 